You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ church. Good morning. Uh, what's up? Welcome to, what's up? <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. Uh, my name is Brad, one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad you decided to join us. What's so funny, Natalie? Come on. What's up is not a bad thing to say. A uh, few, th- few updates uh, from our church family that I wanted to share with you guys uh, so that we could be in prayer for. So two babies, I think two. Does anyone know if the Reeves had their baby? No one knows? We're assuming they haven't. They're not here, so they better be having it right now. Just kidding. Okay, so two babies were born this last week. The Allies, Taylor and Rachel, welcomed the rider uh, into the world on Wednesday. And then John and Serena Phillip had their son, Henry, uh, I believe yesterday. Uh, both babies were born a little, not a little, Ryder was born a little early. Uh, Henry was born a lot early. Uh, and so both babies are in the NICU. Ryder, the Allies' son, just needs a little bit of help and support with breathing, but overall is doing really well and is fine. Rachel's healthy, everything went well. Uh, Henry was born at 26 weeks, so he's very early, very premature. Um, He's doing really well. He's healthy. He's getting lots of good care and support, but the Phillips have a pretty long road ahead of them in the NICU, uh, probably until around November when his original due date was. So we could be praying for the Phillips and the Allies. Again, everyone's healthy and doing well, all things considered, Uh, but anytime you have a a baby in the NICU, that can be a a little stressful, and so we can be praying for them. And then the Reeves, who I mentioned, Haley's due, I think, any minute. And so that, we'll, we'll have lots more babies here in the next few months in our church, which is really exciting. So like Ian said, we're going to continue in our series in Philippians. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be picking up where Jake left off last week. Uh, I'm going to open us up in a prayer, pray for uh, the Phillips and the Alleys, and for our time together this morning, and then we'll take a look at this text. Father, uh, we praise you for the gift of new life. We thank you for bringing Henry and Ryder into the world, uh, for the health and safety that you've provided to them and their mothers during labor and delivery, and for the care that they're receiving by the nurses and doctors right now at the hospital. Uh, We pray for these boys that you would continue to strengthen their bodies, 
help Ryder to breathe on his own and help Henry to grow and develop during his time in the NICU over the next few months. Pray for Taylor and Rachel uh, and John and Serena as they navigate life in the next few, or as they navigate life in and out of the hospital, uh, each with a toddler in tow, and ask that you would bring peace to their marriages and joy to their families as they adapt to what life looks like now uh, as families of four. I know there are many others in our church family who are expecting babies soon, and so I pray for those families as well, that there would be joy in the anticipation of a growing family and health and safety during the rest of pregnancy and into labor and delivery. Uh, as we celebrate the new life uh, of, of children in our church family, we come to a text today that talks about the new life that we have in Christ. And so as we come to your word this morning, God, I ask that you would illuminate it for us and give us greater knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Uh, you have made us yours, and so help us to strive daily to make you ours. Uh, for many of us, our past haunts us. And this morning, there might be some here who right now are struggling with the shame and guilt of recent or maybe even distant sin. God, your mercy is new every morning. And because there is no condemnation for those in Christ, we can forget the pasts that lie behind us and press on towards you and freedom. And so I ask that you would remove our shame and help us to receive fresh grace and fresh mercy from you this morning as we hear from your word. God, thank you for not leaving us or forsaking us for sealing us by your Holy Spirit so that we can never be plucked from your hand. God, help us to live our lives today in light of tomorrow and the glorious future that you have secured for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the last few weeks I've been uh, doing some trail running. I'm not a runner, uh, but I've been trying to do some trail running to get in shape for hunting season, which is coming up, the best time of the year. I don't know about this whole Premier League stuff, but the fall is where it's at because real football starts uh, and hunting season starts, which is what uh, I'm excited about. <clears throat> Sorry, DC. Uh, so I've uh, been going on these trail runs, and they've been brutal and not fun. And so there's a few things that I have to have uh, prepared or figured out before I go on these runs. The first thing is I need some kind of destination, right? Uh, where am I going to run to? How far am I going to run? What is the finish line uh, looking like in these runs? Uh, the other thing I need to do is remind myself of my motivation. Why am I running in the first place? Because if I don't have that, then I will stop and walk which I do a lot of, uh, and then an operation. Uh, how am I actually going to get there? How am I actually going to do the run? What path will I take? What pace will I try to maintain? Uh, and then, yeah, how much am I going to let myself walk this time? So a destination, a motivation, and an operation, all crucial factors before embarking on a run. The Christian life is a race that we are all running. And today, we're given a map of what this race looks like, complete with the destination, motivation, and operation. Paul gives us the finish line of our race as Christians. He gives us the reason why we run, and he tells us how to run in these few short verses that we're going to be looking at today. And so if you'll read with me Philippians chapter 3, we're just going to read 12 through 16, picking up where Jake left off last week. It says this, not that I, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has, had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
So destination, motivation, and operation. We'll start with the destination in this text. What is the goal, the objective, the finish line of the Christian life? We see Paul pressing on towards something, making, trying to make something his own, striving, straining towards something. And so what is this goal? What is this prize? What is this finish line that lies ahead of Paul? And we actually get the answer to this in part by looking back at what Jake preached last week. This is a continuation of the thought from verses 1 through 11. And so in verses 10 through 11, if you'll just look there real quick, Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The, Christian, or the destination of the Christian life is knowledge of Christ. Not just knowing about Christ, but knowing him in a personal and intimate way. So much so that our entire life becomes embodied by his. Knowledge of Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection, Paul says. That we too are promised new resurrected life after death, but also a new way of living here and now on this earth as new creations. Knowledge of Christ also means sharing in his sufferings. It means picking up our cross and dying just as he did. It means reshaping our desires and actions to be more in line with those of Christ. Colossians 3 is helpful here. In verses 9 through 11, it says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The Christian has put off the old self and put on the new self. And this new self, Paul says, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, after the image of Jesus. Our old selves are defined like th by things like our ethnicity, our culture, our customs, maybe our careers or religious affiliations. But now we are in Christ and becoming like Christ. The destination of the Christian life is such intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus that our actions, desires, motivations, hopes, and total outlook on life are completely shaped by him. And the good news for those of us who are in Christ is that this destination is guaranteed. We will arrive. God will be faithful to sanctify us, to purify us, to cleanse us from sin and unrighteousness. Romans 8, 29-30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is the one who will conform us into the image of his son. God is the one who has predestined us, predestined us, who has called us, who has justified us, and who will ultimately and finally one day glorify us. Conformity to Christ is certain for the Christian, and so we live today in light of tomorrow, in light of the future. Our destination is knowledge of Christ, which over time makes our life look more and more like his. So that's our destination. What about our motivation? Uh, about eight years ago, I proposed to Jenna, uh, my wife, at the top of the South Sister. Horrible idea. When you start the hike uh, up the South Sister, if you've done it from like the southish side, uh, you start out for a while in the trees, and it's just this dark forest, and you're hiking for a really long time, and it feels like you're going nowhere because you can't see any progress up this mountain because you're engulfed 
by trees, and it's really discouraging, and it makes you want to give up right away. And uh, that's what Jenna wanted to do. So about uh, partway through the trees, she kind of pulls me aside, and she's like, I don't think I can make it. I think I'm going to go back to the car, and I'll just wait for you guys to go do this. And in my mind, I'm like, that is not an option because of what I'm planning to do at the top of this mountain. And so I encouraged her to suck it up, and you can do this. And uh, she ended up doing it. I encouraged her enough to hike to the top. She ended up beating everyone up there. She did a great job. She said, yes, here we are today. Great story. Uh, but her and I had very different motivations for climbing the mountain. The thing that was motivating me was enough that I don't care how hard this is going to get, and it got very hard, I'm going to get to the top of this mountain because of what's waiting at the top. Her motivation was like, we're just doing this fun thing with friends. I don't care enough about that to keep doing this because it's hard. And so she wanted to stop. So our motivation for doing something difficult is vitally important. The why behind the what in our life is going to propel us through difficult times in this race we're running for Christ. And so what is our motivation in this race that we're running as Christians? Look at the end of verse 12. It says, but I press on to make it my own, this knowledge of Christ, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then again at verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our motivation to press on towards Christ is because Christ has made us his own. We strive to make Christ ours because he has made us his. When Paul talks about God's call or calling, uh, when God calls people, Paul is not referring to an invitation from God, but the determination of God. God is not inviting us into something when he calls us. He is declaring something true about us. Imagine if someone was drowning in a pool and the lifeguard went up to the edge of the pool and just shouted at the person to swim up to the top. That's not, that would, they would not be a very good lifeguard, like probably most teenage lifeguards are. Um, a good lifeguard would not call to the person drowning at the bottom of the pool and tell them to swim to the top, but they would jump into the water, swim down, rescue the person, bring them up out of uh, the water and do CPR or whatever is needed to give new life. Because of our sin, we are dead at the bottom of a pool. And there is no life in us allowing us to respond to the shouts of a lifeguard. We need rescue and resuscitation. And this is what God does when he calls us. He rescues us from our sin by his power and then breathes new life into us through his spirit. We don't do anything to earn this or aid in his saving efforts. We lie there limp and lifeless until God saves us through his spirit and by the work of Christ on the cross. That is the call of God. That is how he has made us his own. And because this is so undeserving and so one-sided and such an act of grace, we pursue Christ like he has first pursued us. Our motivation and our destination are intertwined in Christ. God has shown us his incredible love by sending Jesus to live for us, die for us, and rise from the grave for us so that we could be adopted and welcomed into his family. Jesus pursued intimate knowledge, personal knowledge of us by becoming a man and living and dying in our place. And now in response, just as he pursued us and made us his own, we pursue him to make his life our own. Our destination is knowledge of Christ, and the motivation for arriving at that destination is the love of Christ. And so with Christ as our motivation and Christ as our destination, we press on for the goal and we strain forward for the prize that is already ours in the gospel. 
But what does this straining and pressing on look like? What is our operation, the means of pursuing Christ-likeness? Uh, last year, on uh, my, our, mine and Rick's annual hunting slash mostly hiking trip, uh, we were in the spot that we normally hunt in eastern Oregon, and we saw on a map a spot that was in like the next river drainage over across the, a mountain peak that looked really promising. Or like, we should go uh, check that out. And so we had, our motivation was we wanted to find elk. Our destination was the spot on the map that looked really good. And then they asked me to pick out a route to get us there, which I happily did. And I looked at the map not very long and studied it not very hard and said, oh, it's not that bad of a hike. If we go this way, it's about a mile and it's not that steep. And everyone's like, great, let's do this. Four miles and 2,200 feet of elevation gain later, I was never asked to pick out a route to go anywhere again uh, because we were exhausted, uh, defeated, and the route we took to get to the place we were going was absolutely horrible and not the route we should have taken. And so what route do we as Christians take to reach our destination? The destination is guaranteed. We will arrive. We will cross the finish line. But there are means that God has given us that we use to pursue this destination, and trying to arrive in other ways are going to leave us exhausted and discouraged. So let's look at our operation. Look at verse 13. It says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So the first step in the operation of pursuing knowledge of Christ is honest evaluation confession. Paul acknowledges multiple times throughout this passage and, and here that he has not arrived. He's, he's not completed the race. He has not achieved or arrived at the perfection that he longs for in knowing Christ. We will, we will never achieve perfection in this life. We will never completely and fully know Christ in such a way that our life is totally transformed into his image on this side of eternity. One day, this will be true. But it won't be true until that day when we see him face to face. And so on this side of eternity, as we pursue Christ-likeness very imperfectly, we still struggle with sin. Christ has saved us from the power of sin. He has saved us from the penalty of sin, but we still deal with the presence of sin in our life on a daily basis. And so the first step in pursuing Christ is acknowledging that sin. This acknowledgement and confession of our sin happens the moment we believe in Jesus, when we first come to Christ and believe the gospel, we come to terms with our sin and our brokenness and our inability to save ourselves from it. And so we turn to Jesus. But then confession and acknowledgement of sin is a necessary ongoing practice in the life of the Christian after conversion as well. Just a few notes on confession that I've personally found helpful and I think are worth us talking about. They're the three, I guess, the three F's of confession, we'll call it. First, fast, and full. When we think about confessing our sin, there's usually a list of sins that we have on our mind, ranking from worst to not so bad, at least in our eyes. And it's really easy to move down the list of our sins to kind of the quote unquote lesser sins and share those in order to protect our image. So it'd be like going to the doctor to get some help for like some minor heartburn or indigestion. Meanwhile, you're limping around on a broken leg that you say nothing about. You're not actually getting the healing you need from the wound that is, or the injury that is the biggest. And so my challenge for you would be to confess the first thing on that list. Confess what is first on your mind and in your heart. What's the one thing that you are most afraid of people knowing about you? What's the sin in your life that hurts or stings the most? Confess that first and see what kind of healing takes place in your life. 
So confess first and then confess fast. The longer you wait to confess sin, the easier it will be to hide it. In the aftermath of sin, when it still stings, confess to a brother or sister. Don't wait until the right time. Don't wait until a non-awkward conversation. Sin is like mold. It festers and grows in the dark. And the longer we leave it in the dark, the more it will grow and damage our lives. And so we drag it out into the light as quickly as possible to prevent it from spreading. So we confess first, we confess fast, and lastly, confess full. Uh, Get specific. Everyone struggles with lust, greed, jealousy, very general, broad terms that we like to throw out as Christians. Sharing that doesn't necessarily really expose the depths of the sin in our hearts. Confess the parts about your sin that you're most embarrassed by, and I bet you'll experience more relief and freedom than just sharing vague, universal struggles. Confession hurts. It's like tearing a scab off of an infected cut or scrape. It's painful in the moment, but it actually opens things up and allows for healing to take place. Enduring the pain of confession is a good thing because we need that wound to heal, and also we know that the wound won't kill us. Our sin already killed Jesus on the cross. It will never kill us, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and so we can be honest about the sin that exists in our life without fear of rejection from God or others. In my life, some of the most tangible ways that I've experienced God's love and approval of me is through the confession of sin to others. When we share the wickedness in our heart with people who don't leave us or reject us, we start to get a glimpse of the kind of commitment and love that God has for us despite our sin. And so the first step in our operation in running this race is honest evaluation of our life. Confession of sin. Acknowledgement that we have not arrived. That there is still more of us that needs to be conformed into the image of Christ. Look at what Paul says next. He says to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. So the image here is like a runner that is sprinting full speed towards the finish line, stretching out his body to break the tape, not looking back over his shoulders to see what's behind him. And there are lots of things we can look at over our shoulders that distract us from running the race and looking ahead to what is in front of us. A couple things I want to point out, either our past successes or our past failures. For some of us, we dwell on the successes of our past and look, for, look to them to define and shape our future. This is what Paul had in his past. We saw this last week uh, in the passage just before this. He gave us a whole list of his uh, religious accomplishments of what made him righteous according to the law, his pedigree, his religious observance, his passion for the Jewish cause. But he considered those things rubbish, actual trash. And so what past successes, religious achievements, do you often look to for your value, for your worth, for your salvation that need to be tossed in the trash and forgotten? Maybe it's your faithful church attendance, your disciplined daily Bible reading, or your extended stretch of freedom from some kind of sin. These are not bad things. I'm not saying throw your Bible in the trash. That is not a show up to church. But when we look to these things as our goal, as our destination, when we get distracted from running the race for Christ and start looking to our own religious accomplishments as the source of our righteousness, then we get off course. We become less dependent on Christ for our growth and look more to our own efforts. And the result ends up being self-righteousness when we're doing well, and then despair and discouragement when we're not doing well. And so maybe it's your past successes, or maybe it's your past failures that you look over your shoulder at. 
For all of us, our pasts are riddled with brokenness, sin patterns and addictions, broken marriages, damaged relationships, hurtful words spoken by us or about us, disregard for the honor and dignity of other people, or even disregard for our own honor and dignity. For many of us, our past haunts us, and we wallow in the shame of our former lives, or even in the shame of the decisions that we made last night or this last week. Mistakes in distant or recent memory make our stomach turn and prevent us from engaging in relationship with God or with others, because if only they knew what I've done. If only they knew what I thought about, if only they knew what my desires were, they would want nothing to do with me. But this is not the posture of those who are in Christ. A Christian sitting in the shame from the past is like a prisoner sitting in a jail cell with a door wide open and the shackles unlocked at, at his feet, free to get up and walk out of prison, but choosing to sit and stay in the prison that no longer holds him. When we look over our shoulder at our past successes or our past failures, the, the, the similar, the common denominator here is that we're looking at ourselves. Our salvation, our approval from God, our righteousness becomes dependent upon what we have done or what we haven't. We're taking our eyes off of Christ, off of our destination, off of the finish line, off of the gospel, and looking to ourselves and our own track record and our own history to either gain or lose God's approval. But a runner doesn't look over his shoulder. He strains forward towards the finish line. And so as Christians, like Paul says, we forget what lies behind us. We don't look to our past successes or failures to determine our current or future standing with God. We look ahead to Christ and the promise of glorification, not based on what we have done, but based on what Christ has done. Now, there's an irony here in what Paul is saying, because in a sense, we do look to the past, just not our own. Instead, we look to 2,000 years ago to what Jesus did on our behalf. Our good deeds are like filthy rags compared to the righteousness that God requires. And Jesus lived out that righteousness. He perfectly loved God and perfectly submitted to his will, perfectly loving his neighbor and those around him. No amount of church attendance or Bible reading or generosity stacks up to the perfection of Jesus. And that perfect righteousness is available to all who would come to Jesus in faith. And when we do our sin and the shame that comes along with it gets placed on Jesus on the cross, we no longer carry it or are bound by its penalty. Jesus took both for us. And in this great exchange, our sin for his righteousness, we're given the promise of new eternal life free from the brokenness of this world. What Jesus did in the past guarantees our future so that we can forget what lies behind us and straighten forward to the goal of knowing the one who has graciously called us out of darkness and into light. And this straining forward, this pressing on that Paul is talking about, it's not easy. It requires effort. It requires discipline. The gospel is most certainly opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And the operation of the Christian life includes honest evaluation and confession, forgetting the past and repenting from our selfishness and inward focus, but then pursuit of the knowledge of Christ actively and in a disciplined manner. Conforming our lives into Christ's likeness takes work. Jesus says following him is like dying. And so we daily die to our sinful desires and pursue obedience to God's commands. Uh, the Colossians passage we read earlier, uh, chapter 3, it goes on to say this, and it's starting in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen, holy, chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice, identity is secure. You're God's chosen one. 
your holy and beloved. Therefore, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Straining towards the goal of Christ means making changes in our life. Not so that God would love us, but because he already does. And so we go on to show compassion and kindness, humility and patience. We bear one another's burdens and we forgive one another when we wrong each other. We love one another. We have peace. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by reading it and meditating it and memorizing it and studying it. We sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to God with one another. And whatever we do, in both our words and our actions, we do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus, in submission to him as king. We live today in light of tomorrow, knowing that these things are already true of us in Christ. We work to make them a reality in our life now. Uh, I grew up going to church. I had an understanding of the gospel at a really young age, and I believed in that Jesus was, would save me from my sin uh, really early on. I memorized Bible verses for Bible release classes and paid attention to my Sunday school teachers when they used flanographs to tell Bible stories. Uh, I was kind of your typical uh, good Christian kid. And somewhere along the way, my understanding of Christianity and the gospel became uh, what I and others now kind of refer to as Christian karma. Uh, and I think this is the view that, of Christianity that is still really common, especially in the church. This Christian karma view is when I do good things, I get good rewards from God. And when I do bad things, I get bad things from God. If I'm reading my Bible and praying and going to church and doing the right, good, good and right things, then God loves me and approves of me. But if I am not doing those things or am doing bad things, then God's approval and love for me leaves. And so I was constantly, as a kid and through my teen years, looking over my shoulder at what I was doing. Was I reading my Bible enough? Was I praying enough? Had I said any cuss words? Was I obeying my parents? And the answers to these questions dictated whether or not God was happy with me, according to my view. And so my life became a pendulum of self-righteousness and despair. Self-righteousness when I was doing well, and despair when I wasn't. My prayers were filled with apologies to God for my sin and promises that I would never do this or that again. And as I got older, the temptations of the world got stronger, and my ability to say no to these temptations got weaker. Sin started snowballing in my life until it was out of control and unstoppable. And I continued to put on the good Christian kid face, all the while feeling like scum on the inside. If God was displeased with me because of my sin, then others would be as well. And so I hid. I hid my sin. I covered my shame and tried to atone for my mistakes by praying harder or reading my Bible more. Hidden sin and deep-seated shame plagued me for years until eventually... God opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel. For most of my life, I knew about Christ, but I didn't know Christ. I didn't know that his heart towards me was one of compassion and gentleness, that his love for me was not dependent upon what I was or was not doing, but on what he did in my place. I didn't know that God approved of me totally and completely every second of every day, even in the midst of my sin and shame. 
These revelations led to a newfound freedom that allowed for confession of sin and helped me stop looking over my shoulder, focusing on myself, what I was doing or not doing, and rather look ahead to fix my eyes on Christ, the founder and perfecter of my faith. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think it is common for us as Christians to think that what we do or don't do dictates how God views us. I thought that being a Christian meant being sinless. And so I pretended that I didn't sin. Or at least if I did, it was small and significant sins. That way, I could look like a good Christian on the outside and not risk disapproval or rejection from the people in my life. But this is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Christian maturity is not sinlessness. Look what Paul says in verses 15 through 16. It says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So mature Christians think the way that Paul just laid out honestly evaluating the fact that I have not arrived. There are still areas of my life that are not in submission to Jesus as Lord. I sin daily. But I can forget what lies behind me. I can turn away and repent from my past religious achievements or horrible failures and press on towards what lies ahead. Day in and day out, I confess my sin before God and others, and then I can move on from the past, leave it behind, and put on the new self has been given to me freely in Christ. Christian maturity is not sinlessness. Christian maturity is regularly bringing our sin to the foot of the cross and leaving it there as we press on towards Christ. Uh, A common complaint uh, I think we hear a lot against the church is that it is full of hypocrites. People don't like church or going to church because uh, church is full of hypocrites, to which I would say you're right. (laughs) It is. It's also full of addicts and adulterers, idol worshipers, drunks, Thieves, murderers, people who are greedy, selfish, who are cruel and ignorant. But these same people have been washed. We've been sanctified. And we've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So church is full of people who sin. And we gather not to look over our shoulder at ourselves and our past, but rather to look ahead to Christ and run together the race that has been set before us, knowing that Jesus has already won it and his victory is ours. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, loving us despite our sin. You're not repulsed by our sin. You don't turn away from us because of our sin. It's in our sin that you stepped in to love us. Your view of us is one of total and complete approval, love, joy, acceptance. That's admittedly hard for me and I think many others to wrap our heads around, and yet it is true. And so God, as we contemplate this as we take communion, as we sing songs to you, embed this truth deep in our hearts. For those of us who are sitting even now still in shame from our past, but we're free in Christ, help us to walk out of that cell and rejoice the new life that you've given to us because of Jesus, what you did. Pray this in your name. Amen.